The Politocrat Daily Podcast online store is hotting up with more items to choose from. On your travels to the store at the-politocrat.myshopify.com, you will find 66 and counting, 66, at least 66 different products, all designed by yours truly. So come one, come all to the Politocrat Daily Podcast online store at the-politocrat.myshopify.com. Really good stuff there. I think you'll love it. So get ready to go and have this great experience online. Bye now. Thank you very much for your support. Welcome to The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. It is Wednesday, February the 17th, 2021. On this edition of The Politocrat, Black Representation. What does it look like? And how does it look like? Black Representation on a film on television and where you are. A lot to cover, but as concisely as possible. Coming up next. Welcome back. I hope that you appreciated the conversation yesterday that I had with Leyland Sawyer. She brought so much experience and insight and really important advice. And I hope that you appreciated it. Um, And it's good to have her on because she's someone who um, goes and does great things. She really does. So I hope you enjoyed that. Leyland Sawyer, please, again, as I said yesterday, follow her on all the platforms. I have linked to them in the episode um, and also get in contact with her, which I need to also put on that episode as well at her email address that she mentioned during the course of the conversation that you heard yesterday. And also um, video of that very same conversation will be released as well um, at some point, I think, in the day on uh, this day, Wednesday, the 17th of February, 2021. So look on the YouTube channel for that of The Politocrat. Also, we'll be um, posting some of that on Twitter at The Popcorn, R-E-E-L. That's my Twitter handle. Before getting into the subject of black representation, uh, which is a broad, broad topic, but I'm going to narrow it drastically for the sake of this episode and also for the fact that um, it's going to be myself talking about this and not <laughs> uh, not any guests on this particular episode, but on this episode. But there will be um, in the future, I promise, along with the two other promises that I still haven't forgotten. But I am uh, looking at uh, having I mean, this is in the pipeline too. a conversation about mental health, which is tremendously important and also speaking about relationships as well, which is another important 
component. And that is also coming uh, down the line, I promise you. So those promises will be kept. <laughs> they will be kept. Uh, I know I've been talking about the mental health conversation for a number of weeks, if not months now. Uh, I mean, I've been talking about this since December, I think. Um, but this is this is in the pipeline. And it's just a question of um, the particular guest having the the timing and you know that kind of thing and that can change and as as life changes a lot of different things at any given time but before i get to the subject of black representation i do want to say one other thing that i i did come across on the social media yesterday and adrian lawrence who is on twitter at adrian law which is a d r i e double n e l a w and she's someone to follow, so please do, tweeted out a subject, uh, a story that Bahia, Badia Adar, oh my gosh, Bahia, <laughs> Badia Ahad, oh my goodness, shame on me, horrible pronunciation by yours truly. And I thought this story was very important. And this is something that I'm also going to be talking about, not today, but certainly in the not too distant future, about black excellence. And this is the tweet from Dame Magazine, which was retweeted by Adrienne Lawrence, the story written by Badia Ahad, who is a PhD. And she wrote, and this is the quote from her article, Black excellence places a demand on black folks to hyper-excel, to practice excessive forms of labor and productivity. And only then are we worthy of recognition, of living, of life. By Badia Ahad. She is the writer of the article. She can be found on Twitter at B as in Bravo, A, D as in Delta, I, A, A, H, A, D. Badia Ahad, PhD. That is, and I want you to read that article, by the way, because I'm going to be talking about it in the not too distant future. It's called The Burden of Demanding Black Excellence. Now, what I find very interesting about that very briefly here is I introduced to you yesterday the one, the only, Leyland Sawyer. And I said that when I think of black excellence and black enterprise, I think of my guest, Leyland Sawyer. And that's what I said yesterday. Now, you can go back and listen to that and you will hear that that's pretty much verbatim what I said. And so... When I saw this story by Badia Ahad, I thought back and I thought, to what extent was I contributing to the quote that I just read out about this demand for black folks to hyper excel? Now, my guest yesterday, Leland Sawyer, works very hard, as do I, as do you, if you, you know, you're doing all these different things in your life. But this article is a very good article. And I think the frame of black excellence has to be placed, it could be placed in two contexts. One, it could genuinely be put in the context in which you mean it, which I mean it, which was, this is someone, i.e. my guest yesterday, Leyland Sawyer, who is excellent at what she does. 
And I could have said excellence, but excellence is the same thing. Excellence and black excellence. Black because of the fact that Leyland Sawyer is a black woman, right? And in a racist society that is anti-black and anti-blackness and is a you know racist society that practices and preaches white dominance and whiteness, systemic whiteness and oppressive whiteness, that that is why, could you know, you can look at it in that context that I use the word black excellence. It is a defiant rejoinder or response to an oppressive, racist, white society that is institutionally and systemically oppressive and racist against black people. But this article is fascinating. You've got to read this article and I'm going to get into it some more. So that's just uh, stick a pin in that, will you, for Badia Ahad, who is the writer of that story. And she can be found on Twitter at B-A-D-I-A-A-H-A-D. Something to think about. And that does dovetail with my next and central point today, which is black representation on television, on the big screen. Right now, I can think of three things. Now, there's others, but off the top of my head, I can think of three things right now in theaters or whichever theaters are open, not very many of them at this point, but on demand, online, on TV. Three things right now at the top of my head. One of them is the film The Little Things, which stars Denzel Washington and also the other Oscar winners in that film, Jared Leto and um, I've forgotten his name, the guy who played Fred, Fred, uh, Freddie Mercury. I cannot talk today. Freddie Mercury. And uh, Rami Malek. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Rami Malek, who won the Oscar for playing Freddie Mercury of Queen just a couple of years ago or so. And that was in 2019 he won for that. Jared Leto won for playing um, somebody, I think, who was uh, in the middle of, well, I think, I, I don't know. I don't even remember the exact character. But I think he won it for Dallas Buyers Club. And, of course, Denzel Washington has won two Oscars. And I've been fortunate enough to meet uh, Mr. Washington, or as he's known throughout the world, as Denzel. Um, really good guy. Really good person, uh, Denzel is. So Denzel is in that film. I've not seen The Little Things. And it is available on HBO Max if you get your HBO streaming platform. You do not have to subscribe to HBO because I do not anymore. Um, but it's on and it's available it's in theaters as well and all of that. As is the other film I was thinking of, Judas and the Black Messiah, which of course is about the Black Panthers, specifically about Fred Hampton, who you know, um, any uh, for those of you who don't know, was was uh, a very influential young leader in the Black Panthers in Chicago, and he was assassinated by Chicago police, and I think the FBI probably had a hand in it too, um, no doubt, not even probably, um, in, in his bed. Sound familiar? I mean, that happened in the 1960s, I believe it was 68 or 69. 
that, that he was assassinated. It's off the top of my head, top of my head, Fred Hampton. And he was only something like 20 years old, 21, 19, 20, 21, young, young guy. Assassinated in his bed by the police, by Chicago police. Now, yeah, uh, I wonder who uh, was assassinated in their bed in 2020 by police. I wonder who that could have been. Um, uh, Her name is uh, Brianna um, uh, and their last name is uh, Taylor. The more things change, in quotes, right? So there's Judas and the Black Messiah, which is a film uh, directed by Shaka King, and it stars Daniel Kaluuya as Fred Hampton. And then there's Lakeith Stanfield in it and um, a number of other actors whom I can see their faces but don't remember their names. <laughs> oh, my goodness gracious me. This is what getting this is what getting old is. Right. You, you really your memory is unless I've got some other problem that I don't know of. I do get checked uh, medically. And please, to you men out there listening, please make sure you get your checkups every year annually and also just go into the doctor, please. I know that this is COVID time and it's not the kind of thing you'd want to do in a pandemic. But of course, that's where you wear two masks. And I do recommend, as the CDC now does, to wear two masks wherever you go. All of you, not just to the, to the men I'm addressing at the minute, but for men, please get checked, please, whether it's prostate, colon cancer checks, colorectal cancer checks. This is really important. And for black men in particular, very, very important that you do all of that to anybody, no matter who you are, what your gender, what your, um, whether you're non-gender conforming, whatever you are, reach seriously, please go to the doctor. It's, if you can, if you have health insurance, of course, because, of course, if you don't have health insurance, that may be more of a challenge for you. And it may cost you um, a lot more than you bargained for or maybe not as much. But that's, unfortunately, the reality of America. It does not protect everybody when it should be. We have enough money in this country to protect five continents in, a, in our sleep. And yet, no, we don't do that. We don't do that. Oh, dearie me. But Fred Hampton was brutally assassinated in his bed. I mean, literally. There's, anyway, I don't want to go too much further than that. But it's, the film is called Judas and the Black Messiah. Messiah, And it is it's available now on HBO Max as well, streaming. And it's in the few theaters that are still open. And then finally, the last of the three things on the top of my head right now, is the the great television series Queen Sugar. Now, Queen Sugar is excellent. And it's had, I think, two or three seasons now. Um, maybe more, maybe less. Created by Ava DuVernay, the filmmaker extraordinaire, which she is. And she epitomizes black excellence. And I tweeted that to her last night during an airing of the show, which, by the way, was... The first episode of the brand new season. And what's really great about 
Queen Sugar is that every episode, to the best of my knowledge, has been directed by, um, by a woman. Every single episode by a female directed by has been directed by a woman uh, and I and I think that's great I really do and I'm saying that sincerely that's not uh, um for patronizing or anything and I know that's a fine line that 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 I cross here because it can sound like I'm patronizing I'm sure there's someone who listens who might think oh he's being so patronizing and someone may think that way and that's their interpretation of it. Um, I assure you, though, that when I say what I'm saying, it is from the heart and from the bottom of my heart, truly. Um, it's a really wonderful thing that we're seeing women directing, because uh, they ha- always have, haven't they? It's that this male patriarchal system has shut women out of it. And But women are doing their thing and doing it on their terms. It's like the song from Aretha Franklin and Annie Lennox. Sisters are doing it for themselves and they are doing it for themselves. And one of those sisters is Ava DuVernay. And what she has done is put together Array, a tremendously important uh, service for the African diaspora, black filmmakers everywhere around the world, um, and getting their stories told. And it's really a good thing. And wonderfully having and I think I think all of the women directing have been black women too if I'm not mistaken so I think that's a really great thing I'm a real proponent of that and Queen Sugar is a television series on the Oprah Winfrey Network own O-W-N is the uh, the call letters go and check out that wet network I almost said go and check out that wet work go and check out that network and Queen Sugar is on every Tuesday night 8 p.m. in all time zones. I do think that if you're on the West Coast, you can actually see it at 5 p.m. Pacific as well as 8 p.m. Pacific, but it is on at 8 p.m. in all time zones, to the best of my um, knowledge. Every Tuesday night. So episode one began yesterday for a brand new season. Queen Sugar takes place, if I'm not mistaken, in the bayou in Louisiana. Um, I can be swiftly corrected on that. And it is a very good series. And there's this struggle going on, power struggle going on within a family. There's a a lawyer or someone in business who, and I don't know all the backstory because I've not watched all the episodes, but it is about a woman and her business and uh, community and politics and um, a business and uh, a, a, a black town that's owned by a black woman. And I believe it's a fictional, it may be based on a real town down in, in, in Louisiana, in New Orleans. But there's certainly, um, there's a town owned by a black woman. And, and there are these kind of these rival families, if you will, or this interfamily politics, I should say, inter intra-family politics that go on. It's fascinating and all of these different characters and they're so richly nuanced. They're so good. These characters, the these black characters that you see are authentic. That's the thing about the series that is so arresting to me, not only because of the fine acting and, and the fine direction of these episodes and of course Ava's creation of this whole thing, which I profoundly thanked her for 
um, last night and she was uh, very kind uh, as she always is a wonderful person Ava DuVernay you know um, someone I would like to talk to on this podcast as well but I know that she's very very busy um, that I would love to to speak to her and it's not to say that I won't try to to uh, speak to her on this podcast because I, I, I in fact we've had conversations she and I uh, a number of years ago, but have never met, have never met in person. Um, I've seen her in person, but never actually got to meet her in person. Uh, she is such an inspirational person, and she is a really genuine spirit, a genuine person. And there aren't too many genuine people in the business of film, in terms of Hollywood, in terms of uh, filmmaking, who are prominent like this. And she's one of those few. There are others. I don't want to say that she's the only one. She is one of the few, though. And she has created this rich, sublimely beautiful, wonderful, loving, loving, caring, joyous, human atmosphere, play, stage, cultivation. You name the adjective for she has in this series, Queen Sugar, Ava DuVernay has been splendid in the way that she puts together a loving environment. She does this on her film sets too, by the way. This is a reflection of who Ava is as a person. And I don't know Ava um, particularly well personally, but I know what I observe and what I see in the couple of conversations we've had and the kind of individual she is, it, it just shows through in her work. And Queen Sugar had me almost in tears last night. Dear listener, I almost cried. Now listen, I'm not someone who's shy from crying. I've done it. Um, and I, you know, I think having your feelings are very important. Uh, it's a very important thing. I don't care who you are, man, woman, um, gender conforming, gender non-conforming, um, I don't care who you are as a being, gender fluid, transgender. I don't care which kind of being you are. Whatever your being is in the world, it is important to have feelings. It is important to express them. And yes, of course, anger is not something that is good, but... It's how you harness that anger to do something good, right? Not something violent, something positive and good and life-affirming. And Queen Sugar is the very embodiment of life affirmation, life affirmation. It's just brilliant. I am telling you, you have to watch Queen Sugar, on the OWN network, Oprah Winfrey network. And I was almost, not bawling. I wasn't bawling. I was, there were tears. I am telling you. You have men in this series who feel, who are in touch with their feelings. Whoa. Oh my goodness me. You don't see that on television. You don't see it. Now look. I haven't watched This Is Us. Now, maybe you can tell me that you do see it on television if you watch This Is Us. Because I've not watched a single second of This Is Us. Not a single second of it have I watched. 
And everyone I talked to about it has said, oh, my goodness, Omar, this is us. You've got to watch that. And then they rattle off the names of the performers. And and I, I don't know, I'm just nonplussed. I'm completely nonplussed about this is us. But maybe someone can convince me otherwise because no one has yet. But Queen Sugar, you have men showing their emotion, showing their feeling, being actual men and not these toxic masculine drones, monsters. They're actual human beings on this show. And it's so good to see, especially so good to see men, but especially black men in this position of being these genuine people and not these superheroes, which is something that this article that I talked about earlier, Black Excellence article that I want to get into some more in the near future, talks about. This idea that we have to get this title of Black Excellence in order to be considered worthy, whereas white people don't, right? It, there's this built-in racist calculation that, oh, this is just a, this is, no, oh, this is just a part of who they are. They're just excellent. And that that title of excellence for white people is not being bestowed upon them in order to convince white people at large that somehow you are a good person who deserves to live and deserves to be considered one of us. You know, you know what I'm getting at. But that's not the theater here that Ava operates in. Or, or I dare say many black filmmakers or any black creator out there. That's not what we're doing this for, I don't think. I don't pretend to speak for all of them because we are very different communities in the black community. We are not a monolith. And, you know, what community is a monolith? You know, I mean, certainly not a black. The black community certainly isn't. And Queen Sugar shows you that. So this black excellence, again, I'll get to it, but there is so much excellence in what Ava does. And in Queen Sugar, you get these textured, layered, nuanced, nuanced, complex, rich renderings of these characters who have flaws and faults and make mistakes and make them once and twice and five times. And you've got the grace and wondrous excellence and elegance of a Rutina Wesley, who is superb in this series, Queen Sugar. You must watch this series. And her romance with a white male cop. Then you've got, and now you've got her sister, who is this uh Businesswoman, congresswoman. Anyway, I, I don't want to give anything away. This is. Then you've got another couple, intergenerational couple who are together. Um, Omar Dorsey, and I forget the lady's name who plays um, his partner in the movie in this series. I forget her name. Shame on me. Um, and someone who knows Queen Sugar far better than I do will probably be shouting at the uh, at their phones or wherever they're listening to this from. Uh, but I don't even want to say the name for fear for getting it wrong, um, which is okay. I'm, a, I'm okay. I can actually take getting something incorrect. 
<laughs> I've had plenty of practice. <laughs> but the point is, is that the two of them play a couple and I believe they're married and they are having, they are doing terrifically well. And then you've got Ralph Angel and I forget the actor's name. Ralph Angel's the, the person who, he just puts him his feelings out there and good for him. Isn't it healthy to have a society and a world where men actually are allowed to feel? <laughs> Isn't it great? Isn't, doesn't that make, uh, uh, doesn't it make a man a better human being to actually have access to tap into his feelings? Doesn't that make him a better person, at least in terms of expression? Now, there's other components to that, right? It's not just your feelings, right? Because there's there's a whole lot of other dimensions around being who you are as a person. Forget just men, but as a person, right? That will help fulfill making things better and making you better. But that's a starting point, isn't it? If a man can access his feelings and access them the way that Ralph Angel does, the character in Queen Sugar, we'd be a better species as men. We would. We'd be better. Now, Ralph Angel, he makes his mistakes. And he has his own crosses to bear. And he has a lot of forgiving to do. And he has a lot of that to do and the other to do. And this is based on previous seasons. But you've got to watch this series, Queen Sugar. And that's why I wanted to spend the time talking about it. Because that's representation. Black people represented in these very different, diverse, complex ways from what you normally see. These very one-dimensional, stereotypical um, portrayals. I mean, we've come from something like the Jeffersons in the 60s and 70s. And we've gone to things like films like Claudine uh, with James Earl Jones and Diane Carroll to, to Queen Sugar. TV and movies, uh, I just mentioned there, those, those previous two. The Jeffersons TV, Claudine. Um, was a film, but there was another series in the 1970s, I think with Diane Carroll or someone else. Uh, it was Diane Carroll uh, in the 70s on TV, and I forget, it was one word title, and I forget the name of it, but the point is that we've gone from, let's, let's trace it back even far, farther back. We go to the 1920s with Josephine Baker, who was persecuted, and all the misogynoir that was leveled at her, and the misogyny leveled at her, and the racism and the anti-black racism and the anti-female um, vitriol that was misogynistic vitriol and misogyn misogynoirist vitriol that was leveled at her to the point that she had to leave. She had to leave and go to Paris where she became a completely, I mean, she was put on a pedestal, let's be honest. And not for anything, she, I mean, but because she was so, you want to talk about black excellence again. She was so darn good. You know, one of the great entertainers of that early 19, the 1920s era and, and beyond, 30s as well. And she just didn't get love here in America. But, you know, the racist attitudes of white people in America that forced her to flee. Just like the racist attitudes of people, of white people in England, particularly fueled by the right wing Fleet Street uh, 
well, I could call them all kinds of names, but the racist right-wing Fleet Street newspapers, the Daily Telegraph, the Daily Mail, the Daily Express, the Sun, right? They chased Meghan Markle out of England and Prince Harry out of England. The Duchess of Sussex, Meghan Markle, was chased out of the country. I mean, it's like a metaphorical, I mean, it's hideous to compare these things, but when Michael Griffith was chased to his death by some some white terroristic mob in Howard Beach in 1986, he died. He was killed. He ran. He was forced into traffic on the Belt Parkway. Go and look that up from December of 1986. Howard Beach in New York City in Queens, New York. Michael Griffith chased to his death by these a pack, a wolf pack of violent white men with baseball bats. And it's like, you know, it's this hounding of Meghan Markle of the Duchess of Sussex, a member of the Royals, by the way, let's not forget that. But who cares about that, right? What happens is, is that racists look at, oh, black woman, and they think, well, she's not, you know, quite the same. That's what they think. And so then they write these hit pieces. And then the white public, many of whom are racist, start to go, yeah, yeah. And they're fed with this stuff and they go along with it. They never question it. And they don't want to see Meghan Markle with Prince Harry. What's the duck? What's she doing with him? What's she doing with him? What's he doing with her? And so that's what, that's it. That's what it is. It's not because Meghan Markle's black. It's because of the racist mentality of those white people who have that attitude and a system in this case fueled by the right-wing racist press an anti-black Fleet Street right-wing press that is the reason these headlines and these stories are written you write stuff about Kate Middleton and she's all painted as this lovely lily-white flower of perfection and then you do the articles on Meghan Markle and she's painted as this ugly duckling you know I mean when she was announced she got pregnant the other she was announced that she was pregnant recently announced that and it barely got a mention it barely got a blip over there I mean it got some mention but the contempt I'm telling you it's the contempt that these anti-black racist newspapers in England have for Meghan Markle. And this is the thing. I mean, this stuff is real, folks. It's real. It's absolutely real. So you go from Josephine Baker, and I mentioned Michael Griffith, but Josephine Baker, and I mentioned Meghan Markle, and you go to... All of these representations of black people, how we are represented and we get to Queen Sugar and my goodness me. Because you can even go before Josephine Baker and blackface. You want to talk about black representation. Blackface, 1800s, 1900s. 
and there were white actors doing this. And then Burt Williams came along, black man, and did this. He did it to survive. And all of the ways that we are looked at in this society in America and beyond. This was, this was global. In Japan, they had this offensive toothpaste. In England, the same things with Robertson's Jam and all this other stuff that went along with that. I remember that. I remember looking at the jam that Robertson's did. And you see this, well, I don't even want to mention, but you know, this caricatured figure that was pitch black. And those of you who are familiar know this. Australia, the same thing. Germany, the same thing. Germany, they still do some of this stuff like this with Meghan Markle. You want to talk about black representation? It's racist representation in Germany. When the news came out that the, well, everybody saw this around the world, their wedding ceremony, Duchess of Sussex and the Duke of Sussex, a.k.a. Meghan Markle and Prince Harry, when they got married a few years ago, 2018 or so, I think it was, yeah, 2018. Can't believe it's been nearly three years now. My gosh. And remember that. And Germany came out with this racist cartoon, this racist ad. It, I mean, this is going on in 2021. This has not stopped. So you look at blackface. You look at Josephine Baker. You look at Step and Fetch It. You look at all in TV and movie and in music and how that representation has come along. Here over these last few decades. Sidney Poitier, Dorothy Dandridge, Harry Belafonte, people who tried to steer that ship in a more positive direction. He had Oscar Michaud back in the 20s and 30s making movies. Usmani Sembene uh, making great films like Black Girl in the 50s and 60s. You have Julie Dash, the great filmmaker making a wonderful film called Daughters of the Dust, 1991. You've got to go and watch that movie. You had Uzan Palsy, making such great films as, uh, well, the great film I really think is the real great one, is Sugar Cane Alley, 1986, I believe it was, or somewhere around there. Sugar Cane Alley, you've got to watch, okay? These are representations and slices of black life, of life, that are authentic, that are natural, that we're not seeking to be looked at as excellent. We are who we are. That's what this is, dear listener. The purity of us, because it's been so corrupted by a white, anti-black, racist system that leaves white men and some white women as gatekeepers. And quite frankly, if there are any black or brown people allowed into that sphere, they are in some cases put there to do the very same thing that those white gatekeepers are doing and have done. Now, some of that's changing a little bit, oh, so slowly in the academy, for example, where you've got Ava DuVernay, I believe, is on the board of governors or one of the groups. And she and others are tasked with or they are doing things to 
diversify and inclusify the Academy membership. Now, the Academy Award nominations are coming out in just under one month, and I will be talking about them on this podcast. Yes, I know it's about it's the politocrat, but that doesn't mean that there won't be conversations about films sometimes. There have been already, as you know, if you listen, if you are one of the loyal ones. But the Academy Award nominations for this, uh, well, for the past year or so in the film, will be announced on March the 15th. That is a Monday. That's just under one month from today. And we've seen how white that has been and how few black people and other people, brown, Asian, who've ever been winners of Oscars. And few have been, I mean, how many Asian people? And I'm talking about Japanese, Chinese, Korea, or any Asians. I'm talking about Indian um, Bangladeshi, Sri Lankan, how many of them have been nominated for Oscars? How many of those groups of people, let alone win? So this is what you're dealing with. And so with black representation, you're going through these stages. You go through all of these stages to go for the 60s and 70s. The great representation that Sidney Poitier did in the 60s for me were two things. A Raisin in the Sun, which was a phenomenal film that was a phenomenal play written by uh, Lorraine Hansberry. And of course, others have written about Lorraine Hansberry. A Raisin in the Sun, certainly her book, I believe, or play, play. It was just, that film is so stupendous, A Raisin in the Sun. Turner Classic Movies here in the United States showed that movie recently. You have to watch that film if you've not. And that was, you want to talk about some excellence? Ruby D, who I was so grateful that I got to meet, along with her wonderful husband, Ossie Davis. Um, and they're no longer with us, unfortunately. Ruby D was tremendous in that film. And so many others were, and I forget the other lady's name. Um, was it Diane, Diane somebody or Dorothy? Some, oh gosh, my memory's so bad today. Um, Claudia McNeil. Oh gosh, this is excellence. And just think about it. You know, you had Hattie McDaniel in 1939 or 38 with Gone with the Wind and she won an Oscar. She became the first black person to win an Academy Award. And her speech was so memorable. She couldn't, I think it was an ear, she couldn't even, I don't even remember, I mean, this. it was in California, so I don't know, you know, but anyway, I'll just say it like this. Her speech was so good, and she said, basically, in so many words, you know, I am grateful, and I am humbled, and things like that, and I think she said, it's better to play a maid than to be a maid. Damn Right. It's better to play a maid than to be a maid. So Hattie McDaniels said in one of the, and that and she won in that role, and it's the mammy role, right, that, that we cringe about, that I cringe about, that some of you may cringe about, that a lot of people do cringe about now and, and even back then. And Gone with the Wind was absolutely abominable. I know that people go, oh, it was such a wonderful book. And oh, it was such a wonderful film. And it won these Academy Awards. And 
Oh, Vivian Lee, and oh, yes, Clark Gable. Oh, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. And you love that. Some of you, some people love that, right? They love, oh, and he just picks her up and walks up the stairs with her. And you know what they're going to do. But come on, come on. This film is just, a, I mean, a slap in the face would not adequately describe it when it comes to black representation and just real world representation on top of that real black representation that it didn't have, right? The happy enslaved black person whistling while you work. Oh yeah, we were so happy back then. Not. And it was just a very, to say the least, a very dishonest take about how things were. It was this fantastical fantasy take on how white people viewed the world. Which maybe they did, maybe maybe those white people did view the world like that. And probably, well, t- for them, it was paradise. They had black folk doing this for them, doing that for them. They whipped us, they hung us. Oh, paradise. Maybe they, maybe them, no, maybe they, maybe that was their, uh, you know, take on the world. But, I mean, this is very serious. This is real. And so... Black representation takes on these forms, particularly in the American media, in American news, television, music, and music had been a constant. And they had this thing called race records in the 50s and 60s, and uh, and even into the 70s to a degree. And race records were things that were, oh, black people singing them, oh, race records. And white radio stations were banned. They were, they were not that they were banned. They would not play them. And when they were being marketed, the record companies that would have these black artists, who were the ones that did it all, the record companies would have white people on the covers of black artists' music. I'm telling you, you don't have to listen to me. Go do the research. Black artists would have their name on the front of the album, but the cover would be some, a group of a white family at a beach. I kid you not. I kid you not. That was the racism in this country. It still is the racism in the country. No, I know black people are on their own covers. I'm not saying that. But it's still part and parcel of the fabric of the anti-blackness in this country and the um, systemic oppressive whiteness that blankets this society and blankets all of us, black people, brown people, uh, Native American, Asian, and white, blankets us. Chokes the life out of things. And that representation is built into the way many, many, many white people view black people. To this very day, their information is from music, from film, from TV and from the way that the news media represents and characterizes us. And those things, the news media, is not controlled by black folk. Now, black people may have some stations. They may have their names on stations. Oprah Winfrey. And they may have BET, which is now no longer owned by, I think, someone black anymore. I'm not sure. But when you don't have ownership, as I said a couple of days ago, There are no safe spaces for you on social media if you don't own the network or control it. If you don't own or control that platform, there is no safe space for you. 
It can be yanked from you within at any second. At any second. And so all of those prisms through which white people view black folk, view black people, are through either their own racism and biases and their racist biases or racist stereotypes and not spending time around black people and not having any black friends at all or very, very, very few. You know, the Wall Street Journal came up with an article, I keep talking about this from a couple of years back, a um, study that showed that um, 85% or so, between 75 and 85% of white people who were interviewed didn't have any black friends at all, didn't have any black friends at all. So all of that is baked into the way that black folk are being viewed and represented. And if it's not for black filmmakers and if it's not for black people who may have a little itty bitty bit of power in these industries and these networks, you wouldn't be seeing some of the stories you're seeing on Netflix. Look at the stuff on Netflix now. That's so, a lot of it is very, very good. Content from black creators that's really good, really good. It wouldn't have happened 20 years ago. And even though there was a period of time in the 1990s where you had film representation and you had this, what they call this new black wave, I think it was around 1991 when you had Spike Lee, who had already been doing films for a few years before that, and you had John Singleton and you had Reginald Hudlin, and you had Matty Rich, and you had a number of others, Robert Townsend. But the complaint, and justifiably so, was that all of these were black male directors. They were all men. And I totally agree. That is the complaint, and rightly so. There weren't any female representations, or at least if they were, they were being completely shunted away and not being given the kind of light of day that all these black men were. And a lot of the representations in those films were very one-dimensional. You know, you had these black men who were gang-banging. You had black men who were disrespecting women, black women particularly. You had black men who, you know, it was very narrow. And everyone talked and delighted in this blue, this black wave, this new black wave of cinema. And then that kind of dissipated. And then... You got to see a different era of it. And then you got more black women who had been directing for years, by the way. And we're now getting the kind of prominence through people like Ava DuVernay and Uzan Palsy, who did the, the, a dry white season, I think, in the late 1990, 1997. And then you had, um, oh, Julie, Julie Dash, George Dust was actually in 1991. And that, was, that film got a lot of attention then. But even though it did very well, it didn't get the kind of numbers that the late John Singleton did with Boys in the Hood because it didn't have the distribution platform and the financial backing. I mean, Kino Lorber, I think, uh, released that film, and Daughters of the Dust, and that had record numbers of people in lines at Film Forum in New York City in the West Village. I remember those lines were long, long waiting to see that movie. And so representation is really important. And it's the waves of representation. And now you've got very important platforms like Netflix, like the other streaming platforms that have proven to be indispensable for black filmmakers and creators. 
And then look at television now. You've got Kenya Barris. You've got Shonda Rhimes. Shonda Rhimes, bless her heart. Just brilliant. Just absolutely. Creme de la creme. Another person I'd love to speak to, Shonda Rhimes. Oh, my goodness me. Think of the franchises that she's made. You know, Scandal and How to Get Away with Murder. and You can go on and on. I mean, just creme de la creme. By the way, she introduced the late, great Cicely Tyson a few years ago at the Television Academy um, Hall of Fame. Ah, just ph- phenomenal. Kenya Barris with Blackish and Grownish and come on, come on, folks. And Ava DuVernay with what she does behind the camera and what she does with creating Queen Sugar and what she does with directing these great films that she's directed. My, one of my favorites of hers is I Will Follow. One of the, I think that's one of the earliest ones. She also did a documentary called uh, This Is The Life about the battles between, uh, I believe, West and the East Coast rappers, but also women in rap, um, if I remember it correctly. It's a long time since I've seen that. And then she's done Selma, which, of course, we all know she should have won for. We know she, and I know the film won um, the Oscar for Best Original Song, but it should have won for Best Picture. We all know that, right? We all know that David E. Yellowo should have won for Best Actor, uh, for playing Dr. King. Everybody knows that. We all know all these things. Right, doesn't take away from the brilliance of the film uh, at all because I've I'm one that thinks that Oscars Oscars schmoshkas at this point. I mean, this is an industry that for nearly one hundred years has completely ignored black people and almost completely ignored. Well, it has almost completely ignored black people. Period. You've only had one black woman win Best Actress in nearly one hundred years of Oscars. So tell me about whether they're ignoring them or not. Come on, and then Asians forget it. How many Asians have won an Oscar? Maybe one, one or two. And I think more white women have won Oscars for playing Asians than Asians have actually won Oscars for being themselves and playing a role in the film. Seriously. The Good Earth. Does anybody remember that film from way back? It's it's based on Pearl Buck's book. And remember who, you know, the woman who played, I think she won an Oscar for that. White woman playing an Asian woman. Had the teeth in. and they, Oh, I'm telling you. This runs deep in those Charlie Chan movies. What? Representation. And then Native Americans. Oh, don't get me started. This will be a three-hour episode. Representation. Black representation. So important. And you see how things are evolving. Now, there's still a long ass way to go but this is one of the things that heartens me it fills me with a great deal of excitement queen sugar and it's not the only series uh that's on but it is i think the best because there are others i just alluded to some of those they're more situation comedy sitcoms and some of them take you know they do some serious subjects on blackish and grownish and and of course, Shonda Rhimes with How to Get Away with Murder with the, the brilliant Viola Davis. You know? I uh, Listen, I'm not going to stop calling these people excellent. And this article notwithstanding, which I think is a very good, very important, I'm not going to stop calling black people excellent when they're doing things that are excellent. I'm not going to stop saying that at all. Why? I'm not going to. But this article is very good, the one I talked about earlier. 
that I recommend that you read. Remember the, uh, you know, I, I guess I deliberately didn't mention it, did I? In the 1980s, The Cosby Show. That was another benchmark, wasn't it, in America? Oh, you know, this middle-class black family that, you know, in Brooklyn, New York, they've got their brownstone and, you know, and, you know, and everybody's gone, you know, you've got Spelman grads, Morehouse grads, da-da-da-da-da-da, and a different world. And I'm not going to say anything more about The Cosby Show. I am not going to mention anything more about it. Tempest Bledsoe was really good, though. So was Malcolm Jamal Warner. I'm going to move on from there. But then you had a different world. It's a different world from where you come from. That was... Uh, then they changed the theme tune to that. And I think Aretha did a song for it. Or did a variation on the song. Aretha. Oh, goodness. You want to talk about excellence? Oh, baby. Honey, oh, Aretha Franklin, an activist, by the way, if people do not realize that Aretha Franklin was an activist and was up on everything political, everything, and gave to so many black causes and so many activists, you do not know Aretha Franklin. We only know her as this in, in this just superb performer and all of that, right? We know about who she is in that way, but Aretha was a really good business person. She was very savvy. She didn't allow herself to get exploited by these white record managers in these industries. She was ahead of the game. And pay me my money up front, MFR. That was, I mean, she may not have said that word, I did. <laughs> but she said, you're going to pay me now before I even get out here and do my thing out of here. I mean, I'm telling you, I'm not, I'm not going to steer you wrong. Aretha Franklin made sure that that money was in her, in her account, cash and carry, before she even sang a note. Come on now. <laughs> you think I'm joking, don't you? Aretha Franklin in, in just, well, beyond. So she did this song for A Different World. And remember A Different World, those of you a certain age, way back when. A Different World had um, Dawn Lewis in it and then Lisa Bonet. It was a spinoff. It was considered a, a quote-unquote spinoff of, of The Cosby Show because Lisa Bonet was also in The Cosby Show. And Kadeem Hardison was in A Different World and a couple of others. I think Joe Torrey might have been in that as well at some point. I'm not sure. But then you had that and the French, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And still a lot of it was, apart from a different world, a lot of it was still heavily black male centered. And then that changed as we went along. And then I can't forget Casey Lemons. Casey Lemons, who, by the way, was featured on an episode of Finding Your Roots last night with Henry Louis Gates, who also did something about the black church on PBS. If you uh, can, you've got On Demand, Watch that series, The Black Church by Henry Louis Gates. Casey Lemons, by the way, was on Finding Your Roots with Henry Gates last night. And she's a great filmmaker. Casey Lemons. These are the movies you've got to watch of hers. Eve's Bayou. E-V-E apostrophe S Bayou. B-A-Y-O-U. That is, I think, on Netflix streaming. It was from 1997, I believe. Um, great, great movie. 
really good movie. Samuel L. Jackson's in it and others. Um, Lynn Whitfield's in it. And also Journey Smollett is in it. One of her earliest roles. Might be her debut role. Journey Smollett. My goodness. She is not nine years old anymore. And it's incredible how time flies. And she also did a great film, did Casey Lemons, uh, called The Caves Ma- The Caveman's Valentine. Really evocative film, starring Sam Jackson again. And also, she's done other things more recently, like Harriet, which is a film I do recommend you watch. I think her better films, though, are Eve's Bayou and The Caveman's Valentine. Um, really evocative movie. She also did a film called Talk To Me, and she's done a number of other projects. I think uh, Casey Lemons doesn't get the credit, quite frankly, that a lot of other filmmakers get, and a lot of other black filmmakers in particular. I, I don't think she gets the recognition. Um, but again, uh, uh, as one of the guests I spoke to last year said to me, Dr. Avis jones Deweva said to me, um, is that black women aren't here to get credit. We don't want to get the credit. We just do our thing. <laughs> and yeah, it's true. Black women just do their thing. They're not looking for their names to be put up on uh, Mount Rushmore or anything. Oh gosh, why do they even Mount Rushmore? Um, they're not putting, looking for their name to be put up in lights, is what I'm saying. They're not. Black representation. I didn't even get to President Barack Obama. I didn't even get to First Lady of Elegance and Brilliance, the First Lady Michelle Obama. I didn't even get to Shirley Chisholm. I didn't even get to Barbara Jordan. I didn't even get to Adam Clayton Powell III. I didn't even get to Malcolm X. I didn't get to Fannie Lou Hamer. I didn't get to James Baldwin. I didn't get to Ida B. Wells. Black representation is endless and infinite. And I'm here for it. I hope you are too. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. <laughs>